Welcome to the Wealthy Podcast, where we interview property professionals to help you learn how to invest in real estate in all the best ways. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to another Wealthy Podcast. In this episode, we have wealthy expert Rodney Walt. He is the Divisional Director and Head of uh, EG Private Wealth. Rodney, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Um, thank you so much for having me. As I was just saying earlier, Rodney's a very uh, busy man. He has grown his part of the business um, at an exponential rate. I met Rodney, it would have been about six or seven years ago. And at that point in time, Rodney was doing a whole different interesting deals, as in moving to Austin, Texas to do a whole heap of deals. He's done a number of different commercial transactions now in Australia and what makes this podcast particularly special and, and why I've been so interested to have you on the show is at a certain point, a person's portfolio will mature. Many of the investors, listeners, viewers that are, that are out there may have one or two investments. They may only have their own home, but certainly earn a significant income. And then they say, well, look, I've maxed out in my debt. I've got so much equity. I've got you know, my self-managed super fund, what do I do next? And where we are going today is you really deal with sophisticated investors, family offices, and the types of returns that you get are really are only reserved to a select few. And I want to allow people to now meet you, get a sense of the types of investments that you do. And there's certainly a lot that they can learn from how you invest, how you think, and potentially invest alongside you if they have the capacity. So thank you again for joining the show. Great. Thank you very, very much. Rodney, um, you, you work between the sort of five and $30 million, uh, you know, commercial acquisition space, a whole variety of deals. And, and part of that is really having your finger on the pulse and understanding what's happening from a, from a macro level um, I wanted to just ask you very quickly what you're seeing in the market today and get a sense of, you know, what things you're paying attention to that are of particular interest to you, whether they're opportunities or risks in the sort of macro scale economics. Well, thanks, Dom. I think obviously, um, yeah, I do play in that five to 35 million price point. Um, the reason being that that is an area where as EG, as EG funds management, are relatively unconflicted against the larger funds, which are, are largely backed by large government superannuation funds or offshore institutions. Um, it's been a great journey to get to this point. And um, maybe if you'll entertain me for a moment, I'll take back a second in terms of how the journey began to where we got to today in terms of where we are with the market and all in terms of kicked off with Adam and Michael back in 2012, really, and set up the US operations um, and um, really was an opportunity whereby EG was established back in 1999. Um, and off the back of being backed by high net worth and family offices, um, we looked and acquired initially yield producing sites along new infrastructure corridors and um, taking those projects through to rezoning. By 2006, the business was very much backed by these governments and superannuation funds and institutional clients. And then any deal in Australia north of $10 million was generally fitting into one of our superannuation fund clients' mandates. Um, 
We looked at a number of opportunities. I joined the business and helped them grow their operation in the US. And that was a great way of finding a unique offering in the marketplace that was unconflicted against the existing mandates. We took a number of families with us and invested in the US in Austin, which is a phenomenal city. We took money across that 92 cents to the US dollar and um, grew that to about $100 million over a seven-year period. And in 2019, of um, phenomenal growth in Austin, it just seemed the right opportunity to exit the US and we sold those assets I invested it very well, um, and they brought back their money back at 72 cents to the US dollar and did well on currency, but as well as Austin's growth. Um, and off the back of that, it really was the case of a number of investors saying, well, now what's next? And looking at the growth of EG and exponential growth of EG over the last 10 years was the right time for us to say, well, in this 5 to 35 million price point, we could go out and acquire assets where I'd be sector agnostic. Um, and really just look for good income yield and capital growth for our investors. Rodney, I've got to say thank you for taking it back a step because I, I know who you are and I've watched your story, but I, I forget that a lot of people don't know your story and how you've come to where you are. And, and one of the important factors that, that you I think you pointed out there is sector agnostic, picking up income producing assets and then seeing where the opportunities are. So there's always that value add opportunity for you and your investors, which I really, really do appreciate. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as you kicked off with your podcast and in terms of your investor base, I mean, I think it's absolutely fantastic if someone has gone and bought their first um, rental property, done their second one, but very, very few people actually get beyond number two. Um, I think the percentages are very low single digits in terms of if you looked across the Australian market. And then to take the next leap of faith and look at commercial offerings, um, you need to be able to access those opportunities. Um, and hopefully through discussing it with myself and, and your group, we're able to provide your investors with that opportunity to see other opportunities for investments. Well, the, the part of that market is it really does become quite complex. Um, there are a number of hurdles that you have to overcome to one, become a wholesaler sophisticated investor. Um, there are certain mandates around your income. You have to be earning, correct me if I'm wrong at any point, over $250,000 for two years continuously or have a, uh, a, a gross uh, asset base yeah. of a net asset base of two and a half million dollars. Two and a half million dollars, excluding your residential um, primary place of residence. And the other way is that you need to be making a, an investment of half a million dollars or above. That's not. Yeah, correct. So there's no small sums of money. There are certainly a lot of wealthy people out there that don't even know that they do qualify. But then even if you meet those hurdles, stepping into the commercial space is um, you're, you're hit with a number of different things. Lower loan to value ratios, organizing the finances picking up the correct type of deal flow, where are the value add opportunities? And then suddenly the competition that you face, uh, it, it becomes a lot harder. We're going in competition against you and your team of analysts, your Prism software, uh, the types of deal flow and the you know 10 to 20 year track record where just an individual investor really doesn't have that kind of scope. 
Correct. And that's why I think there is a great opportunity for us to provide those services where we are and we have our finger on the pulse in real estate. EG has been around for 22 years. We manage circa four and a half billion in assets under management. We have the institutional systems and processes, um, which our Honeywell and family offices get access to. We've developed our own software, as you referred to there being PRISMS, which is our own proprietary risk management software. Um, was really kicked off back in 2008 as an Excel-based platform and converted into an app and online tool in 2012, 2014. Um, and really is the showpiece in terms of our secret herbs and spices in terms of how we assess risk in the market. Um, and um, I, to me, I've really put it down to why we have been able to grow and attract more institutional capital. Um, over the years and never sold an asset for a loss um, in our portfolio in commercial real estate. So for me, it's about utilizing those systems. EG is very big on the technology piece, one being PRISMS and two is our Flint software. And that is a data aggregation platform for commercial real estate data. And utilizing those data sets as well as more um, non-commercial data sets such as pedestrian traffic, truck movement, electricity usage, all form part of the basis in terms of how we assess deals and opportunities. Um, we say no to a lot of deals, um, and I think that's the truth of it. So if you're seeing a lot of deals, you get to say no to a lot of deals. I think in my position, being sector agnostic and not having a fund behind me where I have to go out and deploy capital, I raise money on a deal by deal basis. Also, it gives me a different set of lenses in terms of how we assess the opportunities because you only want to be doing the right types of deals for your investors. You don't have the basis of a larger fund where if one or two assets don't perform, it can be hidden within the mix of those that do perform. Certainly. And, you know, now that we do have a more firm set and understanding of who you are and, and the listeners, viewers know what you're about, how you think, May I ask you again, is there anything in particular that's concerning you in the current market? Are there any opportunities that you see from either a policy or, or you know, you, maybe you're watching specific commodity prices or, you know, maybe the new Omnicon variant is concerned? Is there anything that you're paying attention to, perhaps in inflation numbers or just something out there that you're saying, that's interesting, I'm watching that and perhaps we should be watching it too? So, I mean, I suppose in our PRISMS module, we causes the entire group to come together on a quarterly basis. And there are 20 odd um, data sets that we really do focus on on a quarterly basis, which gives us effectively a heat in the kitchen. How hot is it in the overall market? Um, and that goes through from access to capital, what's happening with the banks, what's happening with um, listed equities, IPO activity, global um, issues, be it pandemics um, or um, issues that are happening between countries, US-China trade wars. Um, there are a number of, there's, if, if 2020 was the year being unprecedented year of COVID and um, working from home, um, we found 2021 to be um, providing lots of opportunities, but at the same time, there are still lots of headwinds. Um, you've got this year, 2021, you've got a lot of both domestic and offshore capital chasing assets. You've seen cap rates compressed dramatically in industrial as everybody's wanting to get an access to industrial assets. If you think about the milestone portfolio that transacted in the beginning of the year, um, 
there were five or six groups that were all chasing that deal, all with offers north of three and a bit billion. That still leaves 15, 16 billion of, uh, of cash chasing industrial assets. You've seen that shift in the last couple of months as um, people have looked risk-adjusted basis that retail is presenting fair value potentially based on what you're picking, what you're chasing in terms of these industrial assets. Um, inflation is a concern. We've seen banks um, start ticking up their cost of funding. Um, COVID is still around. As you say, Omicron variant, we're still not quite certain where that will be, whether it is a blessing or a curse, um, whether there'll be more lockdowns or less next year. Um, supply constraints, um, elections next year. Uh, there still feels like there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. And I think that what people need to recognize is really understanding the risk, be that what they're taking on an equity position or in a debt position, um, need to understand and really value the risk side of things because things can change very quickly in this world and market. It's interesting to hear you talk about all the variables, variables because it doesn't feel like there's one certain win pushing us either to say there's more supply or, or more demand. And it sounds like there is a bit of, there are a number of moving pieces and excuse me if, if, if I'm wrong in, in assuming this, but in this type of market where there are so many uh, variables pushing risk and, and demand and supply things, is that really, are there opportunities that people are mispricing in this market, whether it be too much or too little? I think there are always um, opportunities. There's always misprices. There's, there's, but you need to sift through lots of deals. So we might see, 100 plus deals a quarter, um, we may only chase three or four. Um, and that's the honest truth. So it's about finding those opportunities, um, identifying them, understand. And a lot of the value that we've done for our investors to date, a lot of that's actually been done on the front end, um, either finding these opportunities as off-market transactions or in the due diligence period, renegotiating the leases, um, restructuring um, the, be it the, the debt or um, where we've been able to be able to say to the um, tenants in place, um, are there any capital works that they would like done to the property? There are a lot of vendors that have been cautious or decided not to invest in their properties and tenants may want to stay or stay longer or commit to longer term leases if the property is brought up to the following um, spec. Um, for me, I keep looking for multiple exit options in these sites that we look at. So great getting into the deal, but what are we going to do? What are the options that we have? Can we strata, can we subdivide? What is the repositioning strategy for the asset? Um, how do we execute and deliver that value for our clients? That it's not just purely a yield play um, and what, how are we going to achieve the capital growth? So I, I really appreciate that. Um, the multiple exit strategy, being able to look at an asset and say, how many different ways can we reposition it? Whether it's your business, is a, you have a specialty or you have a, a DNA of rezoning. Is there a rezoning capability? Can we release it? Can we cut a car park off? Can we, you know, add a different type of tenancy? So that, that optionality there, it really does out, allow flexibility when purchasing the asset, but then also adding value. Um, 
is this, is this, would you say that that's the um, part of your philosophy when you're purchasing all of these assets? That's one of the core philosophies behind it. And if that is, are there any others that you really look for? I mean, I think if I look across the portfolio and I mean, private wealth in Australia is still a relatively new business. We've really been operating for the last 16 months. Um, we've acquired nine assets, deployed about $175 million in commercial real estate. Um, most of those assets all have um, a repositioning play or multiple exit play. Um, so I think that is key in terms of how we assess the opportunity, but also just where they are, we're living in a market with so many variables, knowing that if plan A doesn't go according to what you've foreseen, that you've got other opportunities to exit. Um, got to be able to purchase well at the right price, able to execute, um, get the right covenants and, and tenants on those properties, um, lease them up, strata to subdivide them, do what you need to do in order to create that value and value growth for your investors. And, and if, if you're able to talk about, you know, one or two or perhaps your most recent deal, would you feel comfortable sort of giving us an idea of what, what a, I don't want to say typical deal because I've seen the breadth of your portfolio. Um, are you happy to share some a particular deal and go through some of your thought processes, how that's happened, what what you what you're doing through it, and you know, kind of walk us through what what a deal might look like, whether it's your most recent or one that's older. Sure, not a problem. Um, maybe I'll give you two examples, if that's okay. Um, one being an older one that we acquired back in March. So we acquired this property, um, and it was being sold as a residential landlot subdivision, but it had industrial tenants on the property, and we were buying it at a seven cap. Not often in the markets are you finding industrial assets at a seven cap. And what we discovered when we were doing our due diligence was that there was a single tenant and he was subleasing to nine other tenants below him. And effectively he was paying no rent. And during our due diligence, we discovered it. We worked with the vendor and we were able to actually bring all of the nine subtenants up to full head tenancy leases, get everybody onto a market rate. Um, and that is just an example of being able to understand what you could do with the property. Um, our leasing team, we take an active role all the way from acquisition all the way through the, the value chain of the property. So once we had acquired it, our asset management team set up strategies in terms of how they could achieve better rentals on the property. We've taken it from effectively a hard stand of $18 a square meter to north of $30 a square meter of rents. And that has generated significant value for our investors, as well as the cap rate compression that has happened in industrial. And our investors have seen a massive upside on that property. So um, practically, sorry to just interrupt you. Yeah. So practically, what was what would a what would the purchase and then what's the value of that now, if you don't mind me asking? So we purchased that one um, for circa nine million dollars. Um, and I think value will find much north of 16 and a half million um, as we go into to to 22. Um, and that was and March this year you purchased March it? this year, yeah. And granted, the market has done phenomenally, has, has helped us, and, and you, can, you can try and pat yourself on the back and say it was all you, but the market has, has really helped us. But our asset management team have gone and performed and been able to get the right tenancies mix on the property, increase the whale, the weighted average lease expiry term on that property, and um, deliver a fantastic result. 
um, so much to the point that we're we're distributing, um, yeah, double digit um, quarterly returns to our investors. Um, quite a phenomenal story and journey. And while you'd love to think it's the norm, it's not the norm. It is one of those outperformance stories um, that, um, yeah, hopefully happens multiple times in, in the journey. But um, yeah, more than likely one of those that, that have certainly surprised to the upside in, in this time frame. And, and I do appreciate that about you and your business, Rodney, is that when we do have these types of conversations, you certainly do talk about where the wins are, but there is a modesty. You're not, you're not, you're not trying to overinflate any of the numbers and things that we discuss. It's they, they are what they are. And I think that's why you, yeah. you do get the results that you do. I think we do. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of these investors have backed me in my seven years in the U.S., um, have been long-standing clients. Um, I've developed very strong friendships and bonds with them. I know that I'm investing their money for their family, their kids, their lifestyle, um, and therefore there's an added weight of responsibility in terms of delivering um, the returns. Some of them require it to live on. Um, and I think while you can pat yourself on the back for those opportunities, um, if I look at the year, there was a property um, that we really did like um, down in, in Melbourne, um, we'd look to combine it with a smaller property in Perth. Um, and during our due diligence, I just got to a point where I didn't feel comfortable with the transaction. Um, the vendor didn't represent for me um, the property in the light that I would like to put it forward to our clients. We spent a lot of money on our due diligence and um, it got to a point where I said to the team, it's time to walk away. And I think that's that for me is the important part, that you get to a point and you're happy to spend the dollars and understand when it's time to walk away. I went back to the investors and said, guys, I'm not going to proceed with the property in Melbourne, but I'm happy to proceed with the property in Perth. Are you happy to, to continue? Um, and that's that for me is really essential, being able to have that honest conversation and say, it doesn't, it doesn't reach a point uh, that I want to need to do the deal. Um, we're doing it because, for the right reason. Can I, can I pause? I know that we're, we're pressed for time, but I just want to ask you one more sure. question about that because I feel like that's an extremely important point that many investors will miss, especially when you are become more seasoned. Um, it's, it's also saying no to deals, even if you are at the 11th hour. And, and may I ask, was there, was it something... Was there a recurring theme that you noticed early in the deal or was there something that you'd sniffed out with through your experience near the tail end or was it, was it more a gut instinct or was it, how did you kind of come about to say, well, this doesn't feel right or, or something doesn't add up? I think, you know what, I think sometimes you just know. I think the gut became very much alerted early on in the piece in, in our due diligence. Um, I flew down and, um, still was feeling like there were missing pieces of the puzzle that I couldn't solve. And it got to a point where I just didn't feel comfortable to put our investors in that situation where um, things might add up on an overall asset point of view. But could I hand on heart stand there and say, this is the right deal to do? No. Um, and I think that that was, that was an important lesson to have the, 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 the belief and say, you know what, it's, it's not the end of the world to walk away from this deal um, and there'll be other deals that, that come about. Um, at the end of the day, um, as much as we've got a phenomenal track record um, of the nine assets, we're sitting somewhere north of 36.5% um, unrealized IRR for our investors. Investors will, you might do 10 phenomenal deals or 10 good deals 
um, but they will always remember the bad deal. And that's not to say that we won't have a bad deal that comes through our mix, but um, being able to say no, hopefully, and having the systems in place helps us being able to say no early to those deals. And if we do get them into due diligence, having um, the rigor to be able to say, it's time to walk away. Um, and if we've burned money on, on, on the due diligence, so be it. But we'd rather not be forced to do the deal. I think that's the difference in terms of um, larger funds that where you're raised capital, you have to go out and deploy it. I don't have that sense of urgency that I have to deploy. It's, on, it's based on the deal. And that's, a, again, another really important point. Many institutions that you might put your money in they have $100 million, they get paid to spend $100 million. Correct. So they need to get it out the door as soon as possible. And there's not that many deals in the market and they're competing with other people. And that's why you get that yield compression at a certain point. Correct. Um, were they the two deals that you wanted to discuss? No, they weren't actually. I'll throw in the third one if I can. Um, sure. Currently raising money for an opportunity down in Melbourne. Um, it is a tavern on the Maribyrnong River eight and a half Ks north of um, Melbourne, CBD. And I think similarly here, it's about what are the opportunities? How do we add value working with the tenant, uh, providing them with capital to expand um, the beer garden access and uh, improve the function rooms on that site, um, as well as delivering our investors a very healthy return during the time. Um, and I think that it provides significant value for our investors in terms of thinking hard about these sites. If you've got a site that's eight and a half thousand square meters, well, what else could I do on the site? Yes, priority one is to get the incumbent tenants operating well and efficiently and, and, and delivering returns, but okay, what else could we do? Is there opportunity for a, a part of the site to become resi? Um, what are the other alternatives? So thinking hard about what can you do with the property um, is really key. And I mean, part of that, do you look at some of these sites and say 8,000 square metres on a riverfront, eight kilometres from Melbourne CBD, there's, this is an A-grade piece of real estate, you know, or, or this is a blue chip piece of, blue chip piece of land, um, getting an attractive rental yield or an income whilst we have that optionality with the tenant and with upgrades, it's, you know, I imagine some of your investors may just come in and say, look, you know, six, seven, eight percent, whatever the, the yield is going to be is an attractive rate. But the long term impact of this type of real estate is, is tremendous. Agreed. I think if you're able to collect an eight percent cash yield on the property um, over a, a period of time, you've got optionality fact, uh, factions here whereby you can say, OK, well, we could develop it. I think if you if the site was vacant, you'd look at it very different eyes. You'd be thinking of it as a development site um, being on the water there. So it's really about, okay, well, can we collect the income and time will tell what is the right outcome for, for the property. But if you've got a strong tenant in place who can operate appropriately, that will allow you to have the time to look at the other options around it. And do you think that where your business has a bit of a... Um... A different stand in the market is that you have the experience on delivering the other exit strategies. Whereas I don't know if a lot of people know, but you've done some very nice, you know, you're building good, to use your words, in some really nice residential projects as well. 
one of my favorites. Is it the flour mill? The, the flour mill. Yeah. So there's some really beautiful adaptive reuse projects that you've done in the past. So I can imagine if I were in your situation, having a team behind me that can deliver on the different exit strategies. You've got your own leasing team, residential team. I won't go into all the teams that you have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they're all available to you. So you can deploy any exit any time. Absolutely. And, and that's key. So we've got obviously where EG started in that urban renewal and rezoning skill set um, and um, work very closely with the team there in terms of what is our optionality, who do we have to work with to get sites rezoned. Um, we've got our development team, which have, are currently working on us. So in terms of deals that um, Private Wealth have put away, we're building a distribution centre at the moment um, for one of the largest healthcare um, funds listed companies in, in Australia. Um, and our development team are working with me and the, the group to deliver them the distribution centre. Um, so we'll be building that um, in the new year and um, they'll look to take occupancy towards the end of next year. Um, we've, we've got a rezoning um, property um, down in Leppington that the team have worked on for our investors. So I think having that skill set and really working across the breadth of all of that really does allow me to draw on really key skill sets um, that really do add the value. It sounds like there's a lot at your fingertips. And, and just to sort of pause the business conversation, may I ask yeah. you some questions um, that are a bit more personal? Sure. Um, so part of, you know, these wealthy experts uh, conversations is I like to ask people like yourself where you've had um, success in your life, you've built a career and you've built your own personal fortune. Um, the one question I want to ask you is, What's your 1% wealth hack? What's the one thing that we could all do today where it would help us build a wealthier life? What's something that you do, person, that you maybe notice and internalize that we could then adopt? Yeah, um, I think, great question. Um, if I was to think about what is the life hack um, that I would give somebody, um, I would say build multiple streams of income. And I'll take that back a step to saying, um, I remember being at Macquarie Bank in 2006. Um, I think the then CFO, Greg Ward, had a meeting. I was just a junior um, working on one of the smaller funds. And I remember you're at Macquarie Bank. Um, it is the millionaire's factory. I wasn't on a millionaire's salary. But um, I just remember him saying to the group that um, if you thought think you're going to get wealthy living on your salary here at Macquarie Bank, you're wrong. You need to have other streams of income. And I think sometimes we forget that, or maybe there's a period in our life when you're 22, 35, maybe a little bit older, where you not, you're looking for the sugar hit, the one-off wins, and not necessarily building um, other streams of income. As you're able to build other streams of income, be it a resi portfolio that is generating positive cash flow, be it commercial real estate, be it shares that are providing dividends, um, that all helps as your expenses grow in your lifestyle, um, as you have kids and um, you reach where I am now in that 40 zone where your expenses are exponential with kids at schools, et cetera. So I think having those other streams of income that can support your, your cash flow during the time is critical. So I would definitely say, build a portfolio that allows you to 
that re receive regular distributions. Um, VC is fun, but um, long times of no income, um, waiting for the money check to come through. It's a really good piece of advice. The only little caveat, if I may add, is at certain junctions, once you start receiving these other streams of income, then as you alluded to, you have the choice of do I spend it on personal things or do I reinvest it back into, because sometimes I feel a little bit guilty about taking this investment income and spending it on something I shouldn't or should, you know? Yeah. So what do you do with that additional stream of income? That's, that's probably a question for another time. I think it is a question for another time. I think something like you, you do need to reward yourself every now and then, um, but um, it becomes a fun. It becomes there's some form of gamification in terms of building these other streams of income and um, setting yourself up for success as well as um, whatever retirement might mean to you. Um, I don't quite think that I have, can envisage actually retiring and doing nothing, but nice to have those other streams of income that can fund um, your day-to-day -day living or that holiday that you want. The, the, uh, to quote some of your investment philosophy, but, you know, multiple exit strategies, you know, the other, the optionality on your own life, I guess. Correct. Um, Rodney, I've got another question for you just on, along this same strain. Yes. Have you, what's one thing that you've recently learned? Are there any recent quotes or books or movies, something that, that, uh, that you saw, heard, or, or that um, read that, that resounded with you? That you can share with us um yeah i suppose life is full of lessons and i think you've just got to be open to those lessons and um those opportunities um i'm very fortunate that i've got some amazing mentors around me um those that share lots of life lessons um i think that what jumps to mind is um Yesterday morning, I was actually sitting with an investor of ours. Um, I was sitting there with um, him and his wife, um, our CEO and, and founder, Adam Gahai, and his son. Um, and as we were sitting and talking, um, this investor's lived the most extraordinary life. I just, you look at someone and you think there could be five Grammy award-winning movies created out of his life and journey. Um, and his wife has stood by him, came here with nothing, built up a fortune, lost it all. She encouraged him to start again. They built it up again and then had a number of corporates come and squash them. And he could have given it all up then. And he, she encouraged him one more time, let's go again, honey, and we'll do this together. And um, I just sat there and um, it was a moment where um, Adam leaned over to his son and he said to him, life is not linear. It's not in a straight line. There will be highs, there will be lows. And it's about how you navigate your journey through the, that path. Um, so I think that for me is, is really just epitomizes what um, really just thinking about the way things go through life and knowing that um, this investor, I suppose, is um, an avid um, boxing promoter and, and, and lover of boxing, maybe the Rocky Balboa. It's not at how hard you can hit, it's how hard you can get hit and keep standing up and moving forward. The goal is to always keep moving forward. It's a really good way of thinking about things. And it applies to so, so many parts of your life, you know. Uh, and, and I can attest to that. I haven't had quite a dramatic story as your clients or you or Adam, but, you know, even our small climb to where we are today, you, you do, 
I often joke with friends, it's just about getting punched in the guts a hundred times a day. If you're trying to run a business or do anything at all, um, if you're trying to push above mediocrity, it really is about taking hits. So yeah, you certainly have to get back up again and do it with a smile, even if you don't want to. Absolutely. Do it with a smile. Um, be ambitious, but be kind and um, and enjoy the journey. Um, pick a team, pick a tribe um, that you would pick regardless of whether you needed the job. So if you wake up every morning and you're doing it with a good bunch of people, um, the journey is fun. And they're there to support you as well when you do have those tough times. Certainly. And look, I know that we're pressed for time. I said that 20 minutes ago. Last, <laughs> last, last two questions. I'll be nice and brief. This part of the uh, podcast, is about, it's about leaning on the network. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you, uh, where can you help us? Like, what, what can you do for the network? What is it that you do with your business that someone listening out there, they can reach out to you for help? I think if you've got any clients that are wanting to explore the opportunity of um, investing in commercial real estate, feel free to drop me a line, whether it's my email or whether it's on LinkedIn, touch base. I'm happy to jump on a call and, and talk through the opportunities that we're seeing and um, see whether it is the right opportunity for you or the right time for you. Um, and if you've got questions or looking at commercial real estate, then drop me a line and certainly try to, we'll try and help you. Awesome. And then lastly, how can we help you? What's, what's something you're working on, whether it's business or something personal? What, what can we do to help you? Um, on my end, I suppose I'm just continuing to grow the easy private wealth business. If there's opportunities that excite you or that you want to hear, hear more about what we're doing, um, um, join and subscribe to the network and um, get involved in the, in the deal flow that we're seeing and um, then happy to jump on a call and discuss and see whether it fits into your requirements. Great. So really for you, it is, um, it is business time at EG Private Wealth. Reach out to Rodney if you're looking to invest or if you've got a deal that you might have in hand, him and the team will be able to have a look at it. And there's a number of ways that they can help you. Rodney, thank you very much for your time today. Um, for all of you out there listening, watching, um, if you liked it, like it, share it with your friends. Any questions, leave it in the comments with me and the team. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Otherwise, have an amazing day and we'll see you next week.